0: Alright, so, obviously this week we're going to be learning about the church, um, and I've titled the, the, this week's lesson or class or whatever, restoration, right? Because, I mean, that's that's the point of the church, right? I mean, we're here to restore. So we have been restored, right? We've been saved. We've, we've learned about all of that up until this point. Um, and so we now take that ministry of reconciliation to the world. Uh, we, we talked about that last week, and I think the third week we talked about the ministry of reconciliation. Um, and we take that to the world. And, you know, we're, we're trying to make things right you know where we're trying to get things back to the way that they that they should be you know we share the gospel with people people come to know Christ and they're regenerated they're made new creations you know and they're brought into a right relationship with god which is the way it always should have been you know we try to alleviate poverty and hunger and 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 all that to get things right back to the way that they should have been you know it's a it's if you want to categorize everything a church is supposed to be doing it's a ministry of restoration right um and so that's why it's called restoration But we're going to be learning about the church and the Great Commission. And now the the Great Commission is not going to be something that we're going to just kind of step into and talk about. It's going to be kind of woven into the entire discussion about the church. But the overall themes of this are the church and the Great Commission. So whenever we start to talk about the church, it's best to start with the definition of the church. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. Every single person that has ever existed that has believed in Christ truly is part of the church. The the church is the bride of Christ who he died for, right? Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So we know that those whom Christ died for, um, those who receive him, they are brought into his church. This is what Christ came to do was to bring, to ransom his church to himself. Now, the church is made up of All true believers in the New Testament, but also those in the Old Testament, right? So the word for church that's used is ecclesia, and that word means a gathering, or literally it means the called out ones. So that's a, it's an, appropriate name for the church, right? Because we are called out of sin, we are called out of the ways of the world, we're called out of the dominion of darkness. Remember we talked about that calling last week? Um, and we are called into something, we're called into the body. We are the ecclesia, we are the church, we are the called out ones. Now that same word, ecclesia, is used several times in the Old Testament to refer to gatherings of Israel. So for example, in uh, Deuteronomy 4.10, um, God tells Moses, and Moses tells the people, gather the people to me, So gather, that word is, is ecclesia, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live upon the earth. So the ecclesia in the Old Testament was a gathering of people that came to hear God speak, right? That was an ecclesia in the Old Testament. Um, and, then, and then in the New Testament... Um, Stephen, when he speaks of Moses, he says that Moses, he was with the church in the wilderness. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the called out ones. He's talking about those who had faith in God. That Stephen uses that word to describe those in the Old Testament. So we understand that the church is made up of all true believers in Christ from the Old Testament and the New. Um, now, whenever we talk about the church, there are typically two different ways that you can refer to the church. Okay, There's, there's two um, different um, realities of the church. Okay, And the first one that we're going to talk about is the invisible church. That's the term that, that we give to um, the, the, the church as it exists, and its, it's a true spiritual reality. This is the fellowship of all genuine believers, right? And this church is invisible because we don't know 100% for sure, without error, who exactly all is a true believer, right? Um, only only God knows that. Second um, 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows who are his. It's, so there's a, some of us here on Sunday morning, right? Some of us maybe in this room. Who are not ex- actually exactly true believers, and I can't say for one hundred percent certainty, other than myself, who exactly is a true believer, right? Um, so, whenever we talk about the invisible church, um, what we're talking about is those who are actually true believers that have existed for you know in the past, that exist now, that exist in the future, and we can't actually tell who that is. Um, the invisible church is the church as God sees it. Um, The invisible church will be made visible. Um, in the end, when Christ comes back and we gather with him in heaven. This is what we see in Revelation 7, 9-10. through 10. It says, after, I, after this I looked and I saw a multitude too large to count, from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the gathered church. This is the invisible church that exists now that's caught in heaven and is made into reality. We, are, we see in this moment exactly who is in Christ, truly in Christ. They were clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a beautiful picture um, in Revelation of the true gathered church um, uniting to, to worship God. So the invisible church is the church as God sees it, okay? Now, the other reality of the church, as you've probably guessed, is the visible church, all right? This is, the visible church is the church as we see it here on earth, as Christians see it. Now, In this sense, the visible church includes every single Christian who makes a profession of faith, right, and shows evidence of that faith in their lives. Okay, now, whenever I say visible church, I'm not talking about visible as the world sees it. Right, I'm talking about visible as Christians, believers who, who profess faith in Christ as we see it. Because we, what we understand is that the church, the world does not have very accurate understandings of what the church is, right? I mean, they, they don't necessarily understand exactly who we are or what we are, and it leads them to give us some very disparaging labels at some points. Um, so whenever I'm talking about the visible church, what I mean is us here, everybody here now. Um, the uh, Paul writes uh, several letters, right, in the New Testament, and he addresses them, some like this, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And in another one, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians. And then this one is really interesting here, Philemon, verses 1 and 2 says, to Philemon and Aphia and Archippus and to the church in your house. Uh, this church that wasn't necessarily meeting in the temple complex, this church was meeting in a house. And he calls them the church. These are professed believers that have gathered to worship God, right? Now, Paul certainly realized that within these within these groups, within these denominations of people, that there were certainly unbelievers in some of these churches, right? Um, but he didn't know exactly who they were. So he addressed, the, he just addressed the whole church, the whole visible church. And this is exactly what we do on Sunday mornings. You know, on Sunday mornings... Whenever we start the worship service, I come up here and I, and I get on the microphone and I say, hey, good morning, church. And I'm talking to everybody here, right? Now, that Sunday morning, there's probably visitors that are unbelievers in the room, right? There's probably some people who are not actually in Christ, you know? Um, but I'm addressing the church, the gathered body of Christ who is professing faith in Jesus. Um, that's what I mean by the, by the visible church. Now, the reality that there are some in the in the visible church that are not actually part of the invisible church, true believers, right, is, is seen a lot of times uh, all over the place in Scripture. But Paul talks about a couple of these places in Acts 20, verse 29 through 30. He says, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. From out of the church, these men are going to rise. These are obviously not true believers, right? They're part of the visible church because they're there with the gathering. They may have professed believers. They're there with the gathering, and then from among them, they rise up and they convince other people to follow them by leading them astray with perverse things. And then also... Jesus warned of this as well, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like sheep on the outside. They look like followers of Christ. They, they make a profession of faith. They may show some kind of evidence, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He says, you will know them by their fruits. The things that they do, they will prove to themselves and to you eventually that they are not part of the true church. They, are, they may be part of the visible church, but they're not part of the invisible church. So, To recap, whenever we talk about the church... Okay, there's two senses in which we could talk about that. We could talk about these local congregations, the F, First Baptist Church of New Lebanon. We are the people who of the body of Christ who gather to worship God, right? And we call ourselves the First Baptist Church of New Lebanon. Now, there's a Brethren Church right up the road, and they call themselves the Brethren Church. They are a group of people that meet and gather to worship God. Um, they are certainly part of the church. Um, but with, speckled within our church and speckled within their church, there are people who are not actually part of the true church, right? There are people that are not actually part of the true body of Christ, that have not actually genuinely been saved and not brought into the family of God. Does that make sense? Okay, so from here on out, when when I say church, what I'm talking about is the visible church, okay? I'm talking about everybody here. I'm talking about everybody that gathers on Sunday mornings, Um, everybody that is a member of this church, everybody that is a, a... long-standing um, frequent visitor of this church, but that you may not be a member, um, I'm talking about those people, okay? I'm talking about us. So in, um, in the church, in the visible church, there are several marks of the church. And, and, and another way that you can say this is there are several purposes that the church has. And that is primarily divided in ministry to God, ministry to b- other believers, and ministry to the world right? So there are three aspects of our ministry that we have as a church. The first ministry that we're going to talk about is our ministry to God, and that is worship. In relationship to God, our ministry is to worship him. Our purpose is to worship him. Colossians 3.16, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And he is addressing the the church at Colossae, he says, whenever you come together, you should do these things. And also in Ephesians one twelve, it talks about those who are saved, we are brought into the fold so that we who are appointed in Christ should live for the praise of his glory. Um, worship in the church is not merely a preparation for the coming week, right? So a lot of us tend to think of it that way. A lot of us, um, or the tendency is to think, okay, I'm going to come on Sunday morning and I'm going to worship God. And this is going to refresh me. This is going to get me prepared to go out into the week and to and to live for him, right? But what we don't need to, and it does certainly do those things. Worshiping God does make us feel that way. But what we don't need to miss is that worshiping God in and of itself is an end in and of itself, Right? That is an end to which we are supposed to live for. This is an, a purpose of the church in and of itself. This doesn't merely prepare us for something or equip us with something. It is itself an end that we are supposed to achieve, something that we are supposed to work to. Um, we, oh yeah, so our mission statement here at FBCNL is we exist to glorify God, right? By working together to make something to change the world. So, this is why we included this statement right here in our mission statement. We exist to glorify God because that at the base level, and that's why we put it at the very beginning. So if you wanted to, you could summarize our entire mission statement and end it right there. We exist to glorify God. And then this is just telling you how we're going to do it because this is an end, the end in and of itself. We exist to glorify God. And the primary avenue through which we do that is our um, Sunday morning worship services. Right? Um, now, this is done on Sunday. This is the day that the Lord, Sunday was the day that the Lord was resurrected. And whenever we meet, that includes our gathering and also includes the preaching of the word and taking of the communion. So we see this in Acts 20 verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul talked with him, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, Paul was kind of a long-winded guy. You see that? He started preaching when he got there and preached all the way till midnight. So you guys don't need to complain about anything. If if Pastor Stephen ever goes long, you know what? Just say, you know what? I'm identifying with my ancestors who had to suffer under Paul to listen to him preach until midnight. That's what they did. But they came together on the first day of the week, and whenever they did, they broke bread. That statement, breaking bread, this is taking the Lord's Supper. That's a reference to communion. This is what we did this past Sunday. You guys are going to have to excuse me. I think I'm getting some kind of throat stuff. Uh, But anyway, so part of that worship, they come together, they gather, they break bread, and they preach the word, right? And also singing is part of that gathering. He says, when you come together, address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. This is why we sing songs on Sunday morning, because the Bible... Tells us to do this. It isn't something that we do just because we like to do it. This is given to us in Scripture. And now also... Giving, giving of our tithes and offerings. This is part of the weekly worship service because this is the pattern that we saw in the Old Testament. First Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. Now, about the collection for the saints, you are to do as I directed the churches of Galatia. So it wasn't just the church at Corinth. It was also the church at Galatia that he did this, which tells us he probably told all the churches to do this. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul was traveling around to all these churches, and on the first day of the week he told them, you bring your tithes, you bring your offerings, you bring it together, and then I'll collect it when I come, because they were doing that to support Paul in his missionary journeys and also to support the church. So that's our worship service, right? We exist to glorify God, and the primary means by which we do that as a church is, It's on Sunday morning. This is where we come together for the preaching of the word, for the breaking of bread, taking of the Lord's Supper, uh, for singing songs and for giving of our tithes and offerings because this is the biblical model of worship that is shown to us in the New Testament, in the Bible. Now, we're going to get into a discussion now of um, ordinances, all right? Now, we understand that Christ has given us two ordinances that we are to follow. That is baptism, and that is the Lord's Supper. Now, you may have heard these ordinances referred to before as sacraments, right? Um, Now, here's the thing about this. Here's a a clarification that that I want to make. The Roman Catholic Church, um, they believe that by participating in the sacraments, they receive grace from God just merely by their participation in these sacraments. God dispenses grace to them. And this grace, the more they participate in these sacraments, the more this grace kind of builds up and they can earn favor with God, right? The Roman Catholic... The um, idea of salvation is a works-based salvation. If I do all of these things, if I'm obedient, I can earn grace, earn grace, earn grace, and eventually earn my way to heaven. Um, that is not what the New Testament teaches, and that is not what we believe here. We do not believe that there is actually a, a tangible grace that is credited to your account by your participation in the Lord's Supper and baptism. Okay? We don't believe that. Um, but that is not to say that your participation in these things is not meaningful. Because it certainly is. What we refer to these sacraments are as means of grace, okay? So think about it. Christ has commanded us to be baptized, right? And so whenever we're saved, we are baptized. And whenever we're baptized, that is us stepping out in obedience, right? We're, trying, we're being obedient to the Lord whenever we are baptized. And God promises blessings upon us if we are obedient to him. You see? So, our baptism in and of itself doesn't necessarily dispense grace to you, but the act of being obedient and doing what Christ has said, that is a means of grace. That is a means by which you will receive blessing. It's the same thing with the, with the Lord's Supper. And whenever we do those things, when we participate in those events, we, re, we receive the, the blessing of being obedient to the Lord. And we grow in our sanctification. Not, because we participated in those events in and of themselves, but because we were obedient and done what God has asked us to do. So I hope that distinction makes sense um, to you. So the first one we're going to talk about, obviously, is, is baptism. Now, baptism... Um, is debated um, in a lot of different churches and a lot of different denominations about exactly how it's supposed to be done, the mode of baptism. Some sprinkle, um, some pour a cup of water over your head, some, you know, we immerse, right? Um, and there's a reason why whenever we're baptized, we are immersed in water. And it's because in the New Testament, that word, the Greek word for baptize is baptizo. And that word literally means to plunge, dip, or immerse in water. That is the literal meaning of the word baptize in the New Testament. Okay, so really the argument should be it should just end right there. And I don't understand why people can't just look at the meaning of the word and understand that this is what they're talking about. But nevertheless, there's some people who disagree. And so there are some other scriptural um, hints that we can see that baptism is by immersion. And one of those that we see is in Mark chapter 1, verse 10. This is Jesus being baptized. And it says, and when he came up out of the water. okay. Now, in the Greek, there is a way that you can say, and he came away from the water. Right. So think about it. If if it was sprinkling was all that baptism was, then he wouldn't have to get in the water. Right. I mean, people would be like, Jesus, what are you doing, man? Just stand right here and I'll get some and I'll sprinkle you on it. It's just theatrics if that's the case. But no, Jesus went into the water and he came up out of the water um, because he had to be immersed, right? The the idea is that he had to be immersed. In John 3.23, it says, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And if it was just sprinkling, you wouldn't need much water, right? You could just get a little bucket from somebody's, from the well or something and carry it and just sprinkle people. But because there was a lot of water there, that's why he was baptizing people there. Um, And immersion also is the most parallel illustration to what baptism is supposed to symbolize. Right now, what is which is the which is us identifying with Christ in his burial and resurrection? This is what we see in Romans six, three through four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here Paul is saying, look, your baptism is meant to symbolize something. It's meant to symbolize that you've been buried with Christ and you've also been raised with him. Sprinkling does not connote that idea. It doesn't. So... The idea here is that Paul understood baptism is immersion, right? You go down in the water, you bring it up. That's the, the only thing that makes sense in light of what Paul is saying here. So not only is the definition of the word baptized to immerse, um, but we see several hints throughout Scripture that that is the idea that New Testament authors had in mind. And so that's what we do. That's what we do here as Baptists. We immerse people in water. Now, there's another distinction that we have as Baptists. And when it comes to baptism, and that is that we baptize only believers. Um, there are, and that, and that what I mean by that is that people that have professed faith in Christ. Um, there, there are some even Protestant denominations um, and Roman Catholics as well. They will baptize babies. Um, they will baptize young children who have not made a profession of faith. Um, but we don't see that in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is. People are baptized whenever they make a profession of faith. Um, this is because baptism, which is a symbol of beginning our Christian life, right? We've been, we were once dead, but now we've been made alive. That's what baptism is a symbol of, our, the beginning of our walk with Christ. So we only administer that to those who have actually begun new life in Christ. And if you cannot make a profession of faith in Christ, then you have not begun new life with Christ. So that's why we don't baptize babies, because they can't make that profession of faith. And now we see um, baptism follows profession in many places in the New Testament. Acts 2.41, those who received his word were baptized. Not those who were born into a Christian family, not those who um, you know wanted to receive covenant blessings or anything like that, but only those who received the word that he preached. And also in Acts eight twelve, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, then they were baptized both men and women. Now, these are just two instances in the book of Acts. But if you read the entire book, it's all over the place. I obviously don't have enough time to put every single reference up here. Um, But what you will find is that every single time, somebody professes faith and then they are baptized. So as Baptists, and here at FBCNL, we baptize by immersion only those who have professed faith in Christ because that is the clear New Testament model. Now, the next ordinance that we're going to talk about, or sacrament, whatever you would like to refer to it as, is the Lord's Supper. Um, Now, this is an ordinance that's given to us by the Lord Jesus himself, right? And we see this in Matthew 26, 26 through 29. This is how Jesus gave us this ordinance. He says, now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many uh, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine till that day when I drink it new with you, in my father's kingdom. Jesus gives them the bread. He says, this is my body. Take it and eat it. He gives them the cup. He says, this is my blood, take and drink. And now Paul, whenever he is recounting to the believers at Corinth what he received from the Lord, right, of this, of this uh, institution here, he adds another little sentence that's not recorded here, but Paul obviously had. He, he said that Jesus said, this cup is the new cup in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And now that, that understanding that Paul gives us there is pretty important whenever it says that we should do this in remembrance of Christ. Because there are, there are several meanings in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is just rich and pregnant with just deep theological doctrinal truth. Okay? And it, it's meant to express a reality. And one of the, the realities that it is meant to express is Christ's death um, when the bread is broken, it symbolizes Christ's body breaking for us. And when the cup is dr- drunk, um, it symbolizes the pouring out of Christ's blood for us. So this is why participating in the Lord's Supper is a kind of proclamation, right? And, and we see this. in uh, Paul talks about this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. the very next verse. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a statement that we are making whenever we take the Lord's Supper, and that is we are saying, His body was broken for us, His blood was poured out for us. And the fact that it's a proclamation of the Lord's death, and the fact that we ingest these elements, gives another meaning to the supper. It shows that. It shows our participation in the benefits of Christ's death for us. So that's another proclamation that we're making. We're saying, I'm participating in, in the benefits of the death of Christ. I'm taking this onto myself. I'm receiving by faith what Christ has earned for me, and I'm and I'm by the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood, and I'm receiving this unto myself. A third meaning of the supper is it provides us somewhat of a spiritual nourishment. Um and this is what I mean by, this is what I meant by, this is a means of grace. There isn't necessarily exactly grace that is attributed to your account just because you participated in this. Um, but, but you are spiritually benefited by participating in this. And, and Jesus himself is the one who kind of told us this. And, and now, it gets a little creepy, 2,000 years removed from what Jesus is talking about. But just listen to what he says. And and keep in mind, he's referring to the Lord's Supper, obviously. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so also he who eats me will live because of me. And now he's talking figuratively and symbolically and metaphorically here. He's, he's uh, foreshadowing the Lord's Supper that is going to come. He's saying, you must take me into yourself. You must receive all of me, everything that I am, um, and then you will have life. Then you will have eternal life. And another, another um, symbol within the Lord's Supper that is on display whenever we take it is the unity of the church. What we're saying is that, we, hey, we are all in this together. We as a group of people, this visible church gathered here at FBCNL, we are all unified in saying that Christ is our Lord. And this is in First Corinthians 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, and this is in the, the discussion of the Lord's Supper, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Right? He's talking about Christ. Um, whenever we take this supper, we are proclaiming that we are all unified in this. We all worship the same Lord. We all treasure the same King. We've all received the same benefits from the same Savior. We're all in this together. Now, when all of this is taken together, when we understand that the Lord's Supper is it's more than just a memorial service, okay? it's, it's Although it is that, of course, Um It is a proclamation. We announce that we've accepted Christ as Lord, and we are recommitting again our allegiance to Him. We are trusting in the benefits of His life and death on our behalf, and we are all unified in our pursuit of this one Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are doing whenever we take the Lord's Supper. Now... Listen to this. This is a quote from Russell Moore, and it is beautiful. The way that he describes this is just amazing. Listen to this. He says, The Lord's Supper is Jesus' sign in bread and wine of his presence with us, of his dawning kingdom. Every time we gather together to eat bread and drink wine together, we hear Jesus announcing, Your sensory appetites are real and good and created, and they are pointing beyond themselves to something beyond all that you could ever ask or even imagine. So the Lord's table then isn't just a visual aid to remind us as though it were a memory jogging tool. As we gather together around the table, we are being trained to eat at the big table in Jerusalem, and we're announcing to ourselves and to the satanic powers in the air around us what is really true. That eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die is a complete sham. The alternative to that is not a refusal to eat, drink, and be merry. That would be ingratitude. Instead, with the resurrected Jesus, we sing out, let us eat, drink, and be merry for yesterday we were dead. All of that is summed up whenever we take the Lord's Supper. We're taking this into ourselves for spiritual nourishment, and we're telling the world, hey, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, let's celebrate, because yesterday we were dead, but now because of what this Christ has done, and we're taking him into ourselves, we are alive, we live. And all of that in the Lord's Supper, pretty amazing uh, ordinance that we observe. So who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Only those who believe in Christ should participate in the Lord's Supper. So whereas baptism is a means of publicly professing to the world that you have began a walk with Christ, the Lord's Supper is a means of professing to the world and to the church that you are continuing to walk with Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 29-30, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, so without discerning himself, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. People who were not supposed to be taking the Lord's Supper were taking the Lord's Supper. And they got sick, and some of them even died. I mean, it sounds crazy, but um, when you understand what the Lord's Supper is and you take that in an unworthy manner in and in, in the not the correct manner, um, there's penalties for that. So everybody that participates in the Lord's Supper should... Be sure that they are a believer. And they should also examine themselves, lest they take it in an unworthy manner. We see this, 1 Corinthians 11, 29 Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Pretty serious. So let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. If you take it in an unworthy manner, you are profaning the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And God takes that pretty seriously. So that's why we say the only people that should be a, that should take this supper whenever we have it, you must be a professing believer in Christ. Right, You must have received the benefits of his life and his death for you. You must claim them as your own. And if you've been made right with God, then you can take this supper. Otherwise, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself because the effects of his life and death have not been applied to you. Um, all right, so, so that is... All of that, these ordinances that we um, observe and everything, this is all part of our ministry to God, right? Our worship of Him. We all do that. We do all these things on Sunday mornings throughout our lives in worship of God. Now, the next um, ministry that we have as the church is ministry to believers, ministry to one another. And... There are several ways that that ministry takes place, and one of those is fellowship. We fellowship with one another throughout the entire New Testament. Fellowship amongst believers is described as the Greek word koinonia, or literally what that word means is having or holding all things in common. We we so fellowship and identify and are unified with one another that we have all things in common. That's the kind of fellowship that we have. That's the kind of closeness that we have. We have all things in common. So remember in Acts 5, everybody came together, and they sold all their possessions, and they put everything in a pot, and they just gave to each person. As they had need, um, that's the kind of koinonia that this is talking about. Now, also in this fellowship of the church, this is where all of the one anothering goes on. Okay, um, check this out. I love this verse. First Corinthians twelve twenty six. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So in the church, if you're part of the church, the hurt that you feel, the suffering you experience, that is minimized because we all bear it with you. It is shared amongst the entire body. We all come along beside you and we help you with that. But also the, the joy that you experience, that's magnified because we all rejoice with you. And that's an, that's a, I love that verse because it so accurately, um, and so beautifully displays, you know, the, um, the the effect of living in fellowship with a church and living in community with the church is that the pain you experience is minimized because it's it's divided amongst every single one of us. We all bear it with you. But but the joy that we experience is is magnified um, because we all rejoice with you. Um Galatians six two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what we are supposed to do for one another, bear another's burdens. And we please the Lord whenever we do that. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Um, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're not supposed to neglect... meeting together, but we meet together to encourage one another. And then he says all the more as you see the day drawing near, he's talking about the day of Christ's return. That only gets closer every single day that we live, right? So as our lives go on, we should just gather together with each other more and more. Now, this fellowship and this and this encouraging one of this one anothering that goes on, this includes physical needs as well. 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's a rhetorical question. He's saying it doesn't. If you see a brother, somebody who is who professes faith with you, who is a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, you see that they're in need and you have the world's goods and you don't do anything to help them. The love of God is not in you. Um, and another beautiful verse in acts four thirty four, when the church met together, it describes that gathering. It says there was not a needy person among them. And a single they were, everybody was taken care of. Um, so I apologize. This is frozen. If it's not the the airplay going out, it's something freezing up. So uh guys, I apologize. Um but so think back to our mission statement, okay? We exist to glorify God by working together, right? This is why we included the working together in our mission statement is because we're supposed to do all of this together. We're supposed to all be part of this mission together. Um and we do that primarily in our small groups right? So you're not going to be able to come on Sunday morning and be able to share all of your needs with the church. And for us to be able to meet all those needs right there, we're here for an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and then we go our ways. But in your small group, where that setting is much more intimate, where you can discuss, where you can share, and then your group comes along beside you and meets those needs for you, encourages you, uh, spurs you on to good works, helps meet your needs for you need to praise for you, comforts you. Um, that's Really, where all of that takes place. So if you're not in a small group, you're really missing out on a huge part of the Christian life, the fellowship that we have with one another. Now, the next area of our ministry to one another, we have just talked about fellowship. The next area is discipleship. Um, this is what Paul was mainly doing in his ministry. In Colossians 1.28, um, he says that it is Christ that we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ, so that everybody could be presented mature in Christ. Um, I like what Robbie Gallaty says. He says, look, baptism is the starting line. It's not the finishing line, right? A lot of us, we go out and we minister and we get people in and we share the gospel with them and they make a profession of faith. And then we baptism and then we're like, Okay. Let's go find somebody else and get baptized. No, their Christian life has only just begun. We're to present everybody mature in Christ. So the baptism, their profession of faith, that's just when it's just beginning. That's the starting line. It's not the finishing line. Um, Ephesians four twelve through 13 says that we are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the m- measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So. We are, we are all, we are equipping you, right, to do the work of ministry. And it's by doing this work of ministry that you attain mature manhood, right, to the full stature of the measure of Christ. Um, what this verse tells us is that ministry is the pathway to maturity. It's not the other way around. You don't wait until you are mature and then get into ministry. You work in the in the work of ministry. You do that to, to grow in Christ. That is how we mature, is by doing the work of ministry. Um, Ephesians 4, verse 16, it's talking about Christ from whom the whole body, that's the whole church, all of us, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, where each part is working properly, that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So every single one of us have a part in this discipleship process. Every single one of us, whenever we come alongside, whenever we join a church, whenever we're part of a church, we are a member with which the church has been equipped, right? And it says that only when every member is working properly, that is what nourishes the body and allows it to grow, right? Every single one of us have a responsibility to do this. and this is kind of where over the last, you know, 50 years or so the church has really dropped the ball. We've we've totally neglected this. But it's not only where like the church leaders have dropped the ball, church members have totally dropped the ball in this as well. Church members have neglected to do this. Um they come on Sunday morning and then they leave. And then that's it. Uh, they they're not contributing to the body in the way the New Testament says every member of the church should. Um, so, yes, church leaders have not taught this correctly, but also church members have not done what they need to do to, to live this out, to be obedient. Um, but this is all part of, of uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is the part, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We do a good job with getting baptisms, but we don't do a good job of, of being obedient to that second part, teaching people to obey all that Christ has commanded. You can't do that in an eight-week class like this, right? This takes a, a long time to do, um, but we, we, we've dropped the ball on, on putting in the time to do that, um, which is why in our mission statement we say we exist to glorify God by working together to make disciples because we realize that ultimately this is what we are supposed to be doing. This is the tangible work that the Christ is supposed to produce. We are supposed to make disciples, a church that exists. If we exist as a church and we're being completely obedient to the to the great commission, then what we are going to see is more disciples being made. Um, did you get that? Yeah. Thanks. Um, we're going to see more disciples being made. Um, and so that's why we've started D groups here at the church. Um, and if you if you have a desire to um, to grow in the Lord, we're, what we're calling it is a time of accelerated spiritual transformation. Okay, this is a one year commitment that we ask those who are interested in this to make. Um, and you meet with you know two to three to four other men or women, um, and you meet. Once a week, um, and you, you study the word together, you hold each other accountable, you pray together, and you're there for one another, and then over the course of that year, um, you grow together in Christ, and hopefully by the, by the time that is done, you've been made into a mature disciple who can stand and feed himself, and then you go out and you do that with somebody else. This is how we, we, this is what we've done here to help you be obedient to this. So, yeah, we've dropped the ball and not necessarily teaching this well. Um, but what we're doing is we're providing an opportunity for you to be obedient in this regard. And we're doing this through D groups. Um, so I pray that every single one of us aspires to be in one of those. Every single one of us aspires to get to that level, um, to, to be involved in that, no matter how old you are. And it doesn't matter, um, that you get into a D group and you grow in Christ. Um, so, um, you have these two ministries, fellowship and discipleship, right, that we're supposed to engage with with one another. And so when you put all those two together, what you see is you see a picture um, that the, the New Testament constantly calls the church, that these are characteristics of a family. This is what a family does. And that's what the Bible constantly calls us and refers to us as the family of God. Um, in First Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, um, Paul is uh, telling Timothy how to deal with people in his church. And he says, do not rebuke an older man but exhort him as you would a father, right? Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. He understands that we are a family. And many times throughout the New Testament, God is referred to as our heavenly father. And twice in Hebrews, we are referred to as the brothers of Jesus Christ. And in one of those instances, Jesus himself calls us his brothers. It's pretty Pretty amazing. In Second Corinthians six eighteen, God says, "I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters," says the Lord Almighty. Now, because of this, what you need to understand that if we are a family, then a church is a place where you belong. It's a, it's a place where you you come alongside us, and you belong here. Okay, if you partner with us, you belong in this family. It's not just a service that you attend and then go about the rest of your life. Um, A horrible habit that you see throughout America is that people really just compartmentalize their church life from the rest of their life. and They say, all right, I'm going to go do the church thing, and then the rest of the week I'm I'm doing my own thing. But then I'm going to go back and I'm going to do the church thing again, and this is me doing the church thing, but then I'm going to go do my own thing the rest of the week. That's not the case. If you are in Christ, you are part of the family of God, and you belong here. You belong with us together. Um, and, and because of that, we should be investing ourselves into the body. Um, we are a family. Now, another part of being a family, right, is discipline. Um, church discipline is talked about a lot in the New Testament. Um, just as a family is responsible for disciplining you know, its, its own members of the family, so also the churches as well. Um, church discipline. Understand this is a means of preserving the purity of the church. Okay, um, and it is without a doubt, obviously, the, one of the most neglected practices in the global church today. Now, Jesus outlined for us how this should be done in Matthew eighteen, fifteen through seventeen. He says, "If your brother sins against you, you go and you tell him his fault between you and him alone." If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. So notice the progression of discipline here you go by yourself. If he refuses to acknowledge his sin, and repent, then you go with two or three others. If he still refuses, then you bring this before the church. If even still before the church, they refuse to acknowledge their sin and repent, then you consider him an unbeliever. Is what he's saying. If if unrepentant sin has can has existed and gone on for that long, um, then you can consider that this this person is not in Christ. Now that does not mean that you banish them. That just means you start sharing the gospel with them because obviously they have not received the mercy of Christ, or else they would be they would be seeking to find restitution with the brother or sister that they've sinned against. The knowledge of this sin should be kept to the smallest group possible at all times. Whenever somebody sins against you, you don't go out and and throw it all out on Facebook for the whole world to see. You keep this knowledge to the smallest group possible. You alone, or two people, or the church, or the elders, or the church, right? Disciplinary measures in church discipline, they should increase in strength, um, until there is a solution to this. Um, but also, above everything else, repentance should be sought and welcomed as soon as it occurs. Okay, the second that it occurs, the second that somebody says, "Look, I'm sorry, I repent, forgive me," we have to forgive. So in in First Corinthians, right, Paul is writing a letter to the church, and he and he has heard uh, a testimony that there is a man in this church who is committing a very gross, heinous sin. Okay, and so he says, "Look, this guy has not repented. I've told him to repent, and you've told him to repent. He's not doing it. So you you cast him out. You treat him as an unbeliever. Right? You cast him out." And in 2 Corinthians, in speaking about this man, this man has obviously repented and he's come back to the church. And Paul says, he says, you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. As soon as repentance comes from the person that discipline is being um, exercised against, we must receive them back. How many times you ask? 70 times 7. That's what Jesus says. Now, church discipline is carried out to reflect the character of the Father, of God the Father. In Hebrews 12, verse 6, says, For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And two verses later, the author of Hebrews goes on to say that if you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children, and you are not sons. So if God disciplines those whom he loves... And if by not receiving discipline, if you, if you haven't felt that heavy hand of the Lord upon you at times when you're in sin, then that could mean that you are an illegitimate son because God disciplines those whom he loves. And so we as a church, if we recognize that, that we are all in this together and we are all believers in Christ, um, when sin like this occurs, we discipline because God does. That is God's way of showing you that he loves you. That is the church's way of showing its members that it loves them too. This is part of being in the family of God. And so to refuse to receive that kind of discipline um, is to say that you are not part of the family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12 through 13, Paul says, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So, what he's saying is like, look, I judge the believers in the church. All right. We, we, we examine the fruit of believers in the church. And if, and if they are living sinful lifestyles, we call them out on it and we judge them for it. We don't judge outsiders. God does that. Now, who all here and, and man, I hope none of you have said it, <laughs> but have seen it on Facebook. Hey, only God can judge me. You know, when somebody gets, gets caught in some kind of sin or something, they get caught on something. Hey, only God can judge me what that person is saying unknowingly is that they're outside of the church and that God judges those outside. Because if they understood what the Bible says about discipline, they'd understand they would receive that because they understand, look, whenever you become part of the church, you're agreeing to this. You're agreeing to be held accountable by the church. Um, And if you refuse that, um, then you're basically kind of saying that you're not part of the church, which I'm assuming most of us don't want to do that. All right, so... Ministry to God, worship, right? Ministry to believers, right? We do this, um, through fellowship, through discipleship, and through church discipline, right? Um, and here at FBCNL, we have created environments for each one of those. On Sunday mornings, that's where we worship God primarily. Um, and through, uh, the small groups and the D groups, this is where we, uh, work together and we make disciples. This is where fellowship and discipleship happen here. Now, so, Now we need to finish up and talk about our ministry to the world, which mainly consists of evangelism to the lost and mercy for the lost, acts of mercy. Um, We are to make disciples of all nations, right? That's the Great Commission. This is the primary ministry. That's the primary ministry that the church has to the world. We declare to them the only hope that exists, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew 28, 18, Go therefore make disciples of all nations. So if we're going to all nations, then that means that we have to be evangelistic, right? We can't just sit in our group and expect the disciple to go out to all nations. We're not being obedient. Um, in Acts 1, uh, Verse 8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So look at what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem. Now what the disciples would have understood that as, as this was their immediate vicinity right? This was the, the the home and the community that they were most familiar with, right? You're going to go to your community that you're a part of, and you're going to be witnesses here in Jerusalem, right? So that's kind of like the greater Dayton area for us, okay? So if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to be obedient to what Jesus says, we're going to be evangelistic and we're going to share the gospel in the greater Dayton area where where we're at. And then he says, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea. Judea, this was the larger surrounding area. So maybe think of that as kind of like the state of Ohio or kind of like, just like the Northeast United States. Okay. That's, that's what would have come to the disciples mind when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses to all of Judea. And then, and this is probably the most distasteful thing for the disciples to hear is he says, you're going to be my witnesses to Samaria. Now Samaria, um, the, the Samaritans were difficult to love. Okay. They were, they were at odds with the Jews, Right? Um, you remember when Jesus met with the with the woman by the well? He says, "Hey, what business does a Jew have speaking with a Samaritan woman?" It just didn't happen. It was taboo. You didn't do that. So when Jesus was telling the Jerusalem the the, uh, the disciples that you're going to be my witnesses even to Samaria, he's saying even to those that you hate, even to those that hate you, even where it's hard to share these people that are hard to love, you're going to be my witnesses. So in essence, he was kind of talking about Michigan, really, right? I mean, if we're being honest, um. We, we carry the gospel to Michigan. <laughs> I had to ask Stephen, you know, what, was a, what is a parallel here? Because, you know, he said, Michigan. You've got to say Michigan. All right. Um, so, a- everywhere we go. And, and then beyond that, he says, and to all the ends of the earth. We carry this gospel to all the ends of the earth. Now, another quote by Robbie Gallaty that I really like. He says, the gospel came to you because it was going to someone else. I think about it. How did the gospel get to you? Because Jesus gave it to some disciples. Disciples gave it to somebody. That somebody gave it to somebody. That somebody gave it to somebody. That somebody gave it to you. It doesn't just stop with you. It doesn't need to. The gospel came to you because it was going to someone else. That's the way that it came to you, and that's what you need to do with it. You've been entrusted with the gospel, the New Testament says. That means that you are to preserve it. You are to keep it. And the way that you preserve this and you keep it is you multiply it, right? If one person had the gospel, the pure, true gospel, and they were entrusted with it, and they died, the gospel would be lost, right? So how do you preserve the gospel? You share it. You take it to somebody. The gospel came to you because it was going to somebody else. Now, we're also supposed to meet the felt needs of those that we encounter, even if they don't believe in Christ or accept our message if they reject us. Listen to this. This is amazing. Amazing. Passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 6, verses 35 through 36. Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend to them, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He, God, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. So be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. God is kind to the ungrateful and to the selfish. God is kind to those who despise Him and mock Him and reject Him. So why would we be any different? If we have the heart of the Father, we're going to do the same thing to those who ridicule us. We're going to be kind to them anyway. And then Luke chapter 4, verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and He laid His hands on every one of them, and He healed them. He didn't stop to say, okay, now wait, are you a Jew? You know, have have you taken a sacrifice to the altar? Have you been obedient to this? Now listen, do you receive me as the Messiah? He didn't do that. Everybody that came, he laid his hands on every single one of them, and he healed them, whether they received him or not. That is the heart of Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the Father. Now that kind of compassion, that kind of mercy, that kind of love is rooted in the fact that every single one of us are created in the image of God. And because of that, every single one of us are inherently worthy of the dignity and respect of being cared for. Whether you believe in God or not, this is our ministry to the world. We take the gospel to them primarily, but where we see needs that we can meet, we meet them. That is us emulating Jesus Christ. That is us emulating the heart of God. He is kind to those who are ungrateful and selfish. Um, So... In light of this, this is how we finished our mission statement. We exist to glorify God by working together to make disciples who change the world. And the way we change the world is through evangelism and missions, volunteering, meeting the felt needs of people, um, helping those in our community, feeding them, clothing them. Um, If you guys did the, the blessed study for this past week, You would have read in Matthew where Jesus says, um, whenever I was naked, you clothed me. Whenever I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Whenever I was hungry, you gave me food. Whenever I was in prison, you came and visited me. Whenever I was sick, you came and comforted me. And the disciples say, we never saw you do any of these things. We never helped you in this way. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, what you do to the least of these, you've done to me. Whenever Jesus came to earth, that's who he identified with, right? This is the son of man didn't have a place to even to lay his head. He had nothing. He was that poor, impoverished, destitute outcast, right? His own hometown tried to kill him and throw him off a cliff. That is who Jesus was most identified with while he was here. And so Jesus says, whenever you do to them, these are my brothers. You do this to me. So that's why we as a church, that's why we, uh, we, we reach out to the lost and we share the gospel with them. Um, but also just a step further beyond that, we, we help them. We help meet their needs. Um, that's what God does. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we as his church should do. Um, so this, is, this concludes <laughs> our discussion of the church. I hope you have a better understanding um, of exactly who you are. Exactly what you've been called into, exactly what we're supposed to do, and how you can do it here at FBCNL.